Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. No spaces. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you, Father Andrew, for that generous presentation. Thanks to Father Dominic for his invitation, and I must also thank Dr. Matthew Minor for his translation of my original French text in uh, this, of this speech. So let me summarize. The ideas are borrowed from Aquinas. The translation is Dr. Minor's, and mine is the old full French pronunciation. <laughs> So, let us begin with Matthew 6.25. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor about your body, what you shall put in. How should we understand these words spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ, as well as so many other exhortations in which he exhorts us to surrender ourselves to the providence of a father who cares for his embers creatures, the sparrows in the skies and lilies of the fields, a father who tallies even the number of earths of our head. What are the theoretical foundation for this practical attitude of self-abandonment to providence? When St. Thomas addresses this question, one of the background contexts for these writings is the heated series of contemporary controversies concerning religious life and more significantly concerning the nature of evangelical poverty. Indeed, some went so far as to argue that working, making provision for futures and ever, even begging contradict the Lord's counsel and constitute a lack of trust in providence. In the Summa Contra Gentiles, Book 3, Chapter 135, Aquinas, in virtue of his sound anthropological realism, records that given man's nature as both spiritual and embodied, he fulfills a duty owed to God by maintaining his bodily life, something that he cannot do without devoting some minimum amount of attention, solicitudo in Latin, to material activities. Perfection does not consist in abstaining from such bodily activities, but rather in subordinating them to spiritual ones. Therefore, self-abandonment to providence does not mean that one should twiddle one's thumbs while waiting for God to place fully cooked quails on the place of his idle servants. 
text number one. We are fools and indeed are guilty of tempted God if we await God's help without acting oneself in those things where we can help ourselves through our own activity. Indeed, it belongs to divine goodness to exercise providence by moving other things to their own action, not by doing everything immediately or, and by itself. Therefore, we should not expect God to come to the head of someone who has neglected to do anything on his own behalf. Were he to do so, this would contradict the order will by God and his goodness. We know that for Aquinas, God manifests his power and goodness by creating not ectoplasmic blobs, but rather substances, that is to say, beings that stand by uh, themselves in existence that they have received from God, and beings that are capable of being causes, that is to say, of acting so as to transform reality. Therefore, anyone who intends to have roasted quays for dinner must go hunting and hit the stores. That being said, the outcome of the hunt, as often are those of cooking, are uncertain. All the devices we put in place to obtain certain results through our activity are far from always and everywhere infallible and crowned by success, with success. Countless factors, wholly outside our control, can interfere with these carefully placed devices and prevent us from reaching our respective results. Perhaps my gun is defective, or no quays are to be found where I am hunting. Thus, I will return home from the hunt empty-handed. Only divine providence always obtains its desired reasons, for its devices are all-encompassing, with no factor standing outside of it, since it is conceived and put in place by the one who is the absolutely first cause, upon whom all the causalities at work depend. As the proverb goes, man proposes, God disposes. It is up to us to act for the best to obtain a certain outcome. But this ultimately depends on divine providence. Take care, however, not to misunderstand this. The fact that the final outcome of my undertaking, its success or failure, depends exclusively on divine providence, in no way means that the action of providence is limited to the external results of my agency. In reality, my entire activity, from my initial decision to act up to the ultimate outcome, including the operation itself, stands under the, under the motion of providence. Thus, when we hear the words of another proverb telling us that heaven helps those who help themselves, let us remember that the very act of helping ourselves is already an effect of providence within us. Unlike the god of uh, semi-Pelagian, our God is not content to take over an action for which we have full initiative, 
but which he alone can bring to a successful conclusion. No, God prompts and then accompanies the whole of the created activity by which we cooperate with providence. When Aquinas says that God does not, everything, does not do everything immediately, this should not be understood as so it were, it were an act of delegation with God withdrawing himself so to allow secondary causes to act in their own term, but rather as indicating that the secondary cause cooperates by means of participation with God and acts in virtute cause prime, in virtue of the first cause. Now, what kind of spiritual disposition is born of such doctrinal principles? It takes number two. The Lord has instructed us not to be solicitous about what depends on God, namely what depends exclusively on God, that is the outcome of our activity. However, it did not forbid us to be solicitous about what is up to us, namely our activity itself. Therefore, he who is solicitous regarding the thing he is supposed to do does not act in a way that is contrary to the Lord's precept. Rather, the precept is broken by he who is solicitous about what might take place, even if he has, for his own part, done what falls to him. He who allow himself to be solicitous in this way falls into the error of the pagans who deny divine providence. Therefore, we must distinguish between two kinds of solicitudes. On the one hand, there is good solicitude by which we desire to do as well as we can the task that is our as we cooperate with God towards the success of a given uh, endeavor. And on the other hand, there is a bad solicitude, which is the anxiety experienced by someone who, due to a lack of trust in divine providence, becomes discouraged at the prospect of seeing the effect of their activity left to the caprice of blind fortune. Thus, for St. Thomas, the spiritual attitude of active self-abandonment to divine providence is founded on what some today would call a high conception of providence, though it is nothing other, according to me, than the biblical conception of providence, namely the claim that divine providence is infallible and universal, and therefore extends to all particular events. In the context of the 13th century, Aquinas established and defended the concrete universality of providence against the emanationist and mediationist metaphysics that both denied it. However, contemporary disciples of the common doctor live in the midst of a quite different intellectual and theological context. Contemporary critics concerning the concrete universality of providence draws upon motivations that are no more those of metaphysical system fought against by St. Thomas. Nonetheless, it seemed to me that his teaching concerning the concrete universality of providence 
precisely because his teaching is based on fundamental and universal metaphysic truth, enables us still today to respond to the difficulties rise in some sectors of contemporary theology against the doctrine of universal providence. I will therefore, in the second part of my speech, uh, present Thomas' teaching in its original context. Then I will examine, examine how it enables us to confront certain contemporary reinterpretation or complete rejection of the Christian doctrine on providence. So my second part is on the uh, 13th century context. The problem concerning concrete universality is at the heart of the question that Aquinas devotes to providence in the prima pass in question 22, article two, he asks, are all things subject to divine providence? The five preliminary objections offer a fairly complete panorama of these classical difficulties. First, providence is not universal because some events occur by chance or by necessity and therefore do not fall under an intention. Second, because God cannot be concerned, uh, sorry, uh, second, uh, because there is evil in the world, most classical objection. Third, because man is free. And finally, because God cannot be concerned with the fate of animals or other irrational creatures. In the corpus of the article, Aquinas begins by presenting very schematically three groups of thinkers who share in the denial of the universality of providence by more or less radically restricting its extension. The first group, the materialist, is somewhat unique for their opinion that the world was made by chance, leads them to totally deny the existence of providence. Next comes those who claim that the action of providence does not extend to the individuals belonging to the sublunary world of generation and corruption, where contingency dominates, as is evidenced, evidenced by the random and capricious destinies to which they are subject. This second group holds that providence is content to manage the noble part of the universe that is incorruptible realities, namely each of the celestial bodies and here below, each of the natural species. Such providence would ensure that there are always dogs and cats for these species contribute to the good of the universe. However, it is not concerned with Snoopy or Felix in particular. The second position was attributed to Aristotle, though Aquinas instead associates it with Averroes, according to his usual strategy of inculpating the commentator to better exonerate the philosopher. <laughs> Lastly, there is a position held by Maimonides, who, while, ad while adopting Aristotelian principles, nevertheless intends to do justice 
to the, so to speak, personalist uh, demands of biblical faith, individuals of the human species enjoy a privileged status on account of the fact that they participate in the intellect and so their action as a subject of a particular providence that takes into account the moral dimension of their activity. However, according to Aquinas, providence is absolutely universal. It extends to all things, to all within them, and to every event that ever takes place. In brief, he argues thus, an agent always acts in order to obtain or realize an end, omne agens agit propter finem. To effect this, the agent establishes a plan that is another set of means or effect in view of bringing about this end. The extension of the plan, ordinatio effectum in finem, and the extension of the agent's causality are directly proportional. The broader or more universal this causality, that is, the higher this agent is in the hierarchy of cause, the more it encompasses subordinate effects and cause, thereby putting in place a more extensive and uh, universal and hence more effective overall plan. Let us take an example. The FBI, having access to the entire intelligence apparatus and police force of the nation, is most more likely to capture a fleeing terrorist than the local police station, which has limited resources and a small era of operation. The plan the FBI employs to apprehend a terrorist is far more extensive, pervasive, and so effective, making it harder for the fugitive to escape its grasp. Now, without claiming to equate divine providence and the prodigious effectiveness of the FBI, <laughs> le le let us apply this principle to it, and it's the text, num uh, the text number uh, three. As the first agents, God's causality extends to all being, not only as regards the principle of each species, but also individual principle, and not only to uncorruptible realities, but also to corruptible ones. Therefore, it is necessary that everything that possesses being in any way is ordered by God toward its end. The teaching concerning the universality of providence, as well as that concerning the universality of divine knowledge, depends quite directly upon the teaching concerning divine causality. God is the first cause, which means much more than merely being the first among causes in an homogeneous series of secondary causes. Between the first uncreated cause and secondary created cause, there is a difference in nature and not just in degree. The first cause contains within itself all the causal power that will be unfolded in the activity of secondary causes. All protagonists in the medieval debate regarding the universality of divine providence agree 
on the connection between causality and providence. God knows, orders, and governs everything of which he is the cause. However, the crucial question remains, what exactly is he the cause of? All agree that God, as self-subsistent essay, is the cause of the essay of beings, which is his proper effect. But what is the part played by essay within a given being? Here, the paths diverge. Let me open a brief parenthesis. I written, I written the Latin term essay in my speech to avoid the ambiguity of the English term being, which can means, mean both the subject's act of being, essay, and the subject exercising this act of being, ends. As for the term existence, it does not seem sufficient to describe what Aquinas means by essay. So I close this uh, uh, lexicographical parenthesis. For some, like Averroes, essay is conceived as a supreme genius. It is the most common and general determination or perfection in extension. Essay belongs to everything. Why it is the poorest in content or comprehension? Essay is a minimal residual perfection, a kind of substrate that remains when other perfections are illuminated. Essay is, in fact, mere existence. That is a fact for the essence to be placed outside of its causes, outside of mere possibility. In short, such that it is not nothing. Therefore, essay is a general form, a kind of minimal univocal substrate unto which subsequent determination are graft, living, animal, human, and so on. From this avaristic perspective, God's causality, whose effect is a mere existence, uh, only reaches a very limited part of the reality. And uh, the aspect by which the reality is a being, that is, by which it is not nothing. Other perfection or subsequent determination, which are at the root of the distinction among things, since, for instance, a dog is not distinguished from a cat by their existence, which is common and univocal property, but by their respective darkness or catness, to repeat other perfection or subsequent determination directly stem from secondary causes and do not depend directly on the activity of God. By contrast, for St. Thomas Aquinas, essay is not a generic or predicamental determination like others. It is, as expressed in the well-known phrase from the De Potentia, the actuality of all acts and for that reason, the perfection of all perfections. An intensive act, the primordial ontological energy, essay actualizes all the determination of the essence that receives it and specifies it. It penetrates, or so to speak, imbues them with its actuality. Far for, far for being 
un mere substrate for subsequent perfection, Ace virtually contains them all. To live, to sing, to love, none of this perfection are did to Ace, but rather unfold the all-encompassing perfection that is Ace. Usually, universality in extension and universality in comprehension are inversely proportional. In the unique case of essay, however, they coincide. This conception of essay sheds decisive light on Thomas's act, uh, teaching on providence. If essay pertains to everything, if essay is uh, in everything, and if furthermore, essay is a proper effect of God causality, then the divine causality is direct and complete for every creature. There is nothing positive in reality that does not immediately depend on the causal influx of God. Therefore, there is nothing in reality that is not ordered by God to God. Nothing exists outside the plan of providence. My third part, the question today. Since the 13th century, profound changes have reoriented the intellectual and cultural framework within which the question of the universality of providence is posed. For instance, for the ancient, also providence was understood as extending to the whole of reality, it was most evident in the harmonious and unchanging course of the cosmos, more so than in the earthly world, and even more so than in the tumultuous history of mankind. Today, the situation has, to, so to speak, reversed. The cosmos seems to have ceased to declare the glory of God and to be the sacrament of providence as it was for the ancients. By contrast, the eternal silence of these infinite spaces fills me with fear, as Pascal remarked, in words that echo the disquiet of the modern essayist. Like the ancient Gnostics, humans today feel like strangers in a mute, indifferent, and ever hostile cosmos. It is up to them through their activity to infuse some meaning into a material order that is inherently meaningless. There are many causes for uh, these evolutions, and they correspond to the significant changes that have marked our intellectual history. Among them, a decisive role, at least it seems to me, belongs to Christian voluntarism that gained prominence during the late Middle Ages. In reaction to presumed Aristotelian naturalism, a theological current emerged that sought to extract the realm, the realm of human subjectivity from the law or nature, expressing the intelligible structure of the cosmos. For the voluntarists, the subject asserts its freedom more effectively 
by distancing himself from nature as it is represented to the will by the intellect. Thus, for large sectors of uh, modern thought, a separation came to be established, to use Kantian terms, between the realm of nature or necessity and the realm of subjectivity or freedom. This inevitably led to a resurgence of dualism in contemporary post-Kantian theology. A major symptom of this is the crisis that has taken place concerning the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, fueled by the evolutionary mindset that portrays divine creation as a progressive process of organizing a primordial chaos, the origin of which remains scarcely explained. Yes, we are told that this new dualism, like the old one, offers a more satisfying answer to the problem of God innocence in front of evil than does classical uh, theistic uh, metaphysics. God cannot be held responsible for the suffering that inherently accompanies the process of progressive creation. But furthermore, if nature and spirit are completely heterogeneous domains, the biblical doctrine that establish a connection between human suffering and human seeing loses all intelligibility. All we are asked could physical suffering have moral significance. But let us say again, the doctrine of creation and creation ex nihilo is a keystone of Thomistic theology. For Aquinas, as is clear, for example, in the well-known article two of question 44 in the Prima Pass, the history of fundamental philosophy, that is the history of seeking the deepest and consequently most explanatory causes of reality, this history is the history of resolving dualism by the unveiling of the doctrine of creation ex hinicilo. The, plura the plurality of fundamental principles, for instance, for Plat Plato, Ides and Martyr, gives way to the recognition of a single force creative cause, God. God, he who is ipsum esse subsistence, is a primary principle of both the world of nature and the world of spirit, which belong to one and the same metaphysical ontological universe. Now, the rupture between human subjectivity and nature a consequence of forgetting the metaphysics of creation ex nihilo, has led to a substantial shift in discourse about God, God and providence. Instead of anal analogically understanding the mystery of God from the perspective of esse, being, it is now considered univocally, either in terms of physical categories that governs the proper intelligibility of the cosmos, or in terms of the categories of human intersubjectivity. In this late, late latter case, providence 
is perceived as one subjectivity addressing another subjectivity, why in this intimate interpersonal encounter, nature is totally marginalized. It is said, for instance, that providence does not operate on events, but only on freedom. However, when the relationship between divine providence and created freedom is no more understood on the foundation of a metaphysic of being, human freedom is exempted from God's sovereign causality and finds itself set face to face before God. Says divine providence is condemned to act only by entering into a sort of partnership with subjectivities, forced to negotiate with subjectivities in order to achieve its ends. To put it another way, God's action, we are told, must conform to the model of human intersubjective relation. Consequently, it will primarily be exercised through moral solicitation, which is the usual way that one human person acts upon another. Thus, God would act by offering humans through his word or the examples of Jesus Christ, an idea and motivation that can lead them to transform the world and human relationships in a way that brings about the kingdom of God. However, it is generally excluded that God acts ontologically on the world itself, whether upon nature or upon subjectivity. Says to express this outlook in using uh, scholastic terminology, divine causality is no longer exercised in the order of ontological efficient causality, but instead is limited to the realm of objective moral final causality. In my opinion, this substitution of categories of intersubjectivity in place of the larger categories of metaphysics of being impoverishes our theology of providence. Indeed, the categories of intersubjectivity fail to account for the transcendence of divine providence and its traditional properties, such as infallibility and universality. Whereas the general uh, categories of Thomistic metaphysic of being can do justice to the specific aspects of providence conduct in relation to persons. For Aquinas, one single providence is exercised in diverse way, taking into account the proper nature of each creature and its place in the order of the universe. No, not all creatures contribute equally to the common good of the universe, which is the penultimate fi finality pursued by God providential action, with the ultimate purpose being the glory of God resulting from this common good of the universe. Some spiritual creatures, angels, and humans contribute to it directly, whereas other purely corporeal creatures contribute to it indirectly. Indeed, spiritual creatures more fully fulfills the ends that God pursues through all his activity ad extra. I mean, 
the communication and diffusion of a likeness of his own perfection. Because they are images of God through their spiritual faculties, spiritual creatures are capable of participating in the knowledge and love that God has of himself and of all things in him. And when through the activity of these faculties, they turn toward God and make him the object of their knowledge and love, they actualize this likeness to God and thereby make his glory shine forth. Consequently, spiritual creatures are governed for their own sake, which implies specific modalities that give particular determination to the universal law of di divine governance over being, all the while not eliminating them. Spiritual creatures are characterized by their ability to understand and internalize the finalities of providence and to freely orient themselves towards these finalities. Providence governs them in a way that befits their capacity to cooperate in the divine governance over themselves and others. It governs them a particular providences operate, sorry, it governs them as particular providences operating within the framework of universal divine providence, text number four. The various uh, modalities of God's providential action over human person are derived from this. It operates by eliciting the free cooperation of persons as guided. It presents as object for their will actions that are suited to their perfection. This presentation directed to the mind takes place in particular through laws. And it is telling that in book three of the Summa Contra Gentiles, the study of divine law, chapter 114 and following, immediately follows his reflection on the specific modalities of providence over spiritual creature, chapter uh, 111, 113. That means by instructing and commanding, the law enables one to participate in God's creative and providential wisdom. However, this providential action over spiritual creatures through objective moral causality does not in any way exempt them from the general laws of metaphysics. At the same time as he solicits the person to act, God, Philippians 2.13, is at work in us both to will and to bring about the accomplishment of his work. God ontologically stimulates, actualizes, and directs the person's free activity, just as he does for all creatory actions, acting as the first cause as the heart of all created activity. The free action of creature involves no suspension of the general law of being and activity. Is a text number five. Freedom does not require that what is free be the first cause of itself, nor does being the cause of something required something to be the first cause thereof. God is the first cause, 
moving both natural and voluntary causes. This integrative, this non-competitive outlook funded upon the metaphysic of participation enables Aquinas to affirm both the absolute sovereignty and universality of providence and the reality of human action where individuals are actors of their own history. Conversely, when subjectivity or freedom is perceived as a no-God's land, one cannot avoid the competitive schema and God must withdraw himself if humans are to be free. In a theology that operates within the framework of intersubjectivity, this withdrawal will be attributed at best to a free kenosis of love, since in our human context, but not well, quite exactly in our human context, authentic love often involves self-withdrawal and self-denial for the sake of promoting those whom we love. This is not the case, however, for St. Thomas' teaching concerning providence. According to him, God's love is precisely God's love, that is to say, the love of him whose love infuses and creates goodness in things. So, the more God acts and is present, the greater the creature becomes. Therefore, it's my conclusion, Aquinas' creationist metaphysics enables us to uphold today as in the 13th century, albeit in very different contexts, the Christian teaching concerning the concrete universality of providence, which serve as the foundation for our hope in the fulfillment of God's plan and for the practical spiritual attitude of confident self-abandonment to providence. Admittedly, admittedly, our perception of God's action within and around us has lost the spontaneity it might have had in the enchanted atmosphere of pre-modern cultures. Nonetheless, viewed in the light of faith and fortified by strong metaphysical insight, we can, with the common doctor, we can still discern the benevolent love of God at work in the governance of the world and of every of our lives. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.